one of the first verses of the New Testament is this, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 21. You will name him Jesus because, because he will save. There, there was a purpose behind it and that purpose is really what we're gonna talk about. We got a little bit of work to do today and we're going to dive right into it in the next, oh, four, 45 minutes or so. Maybe not even that long. I'm Andy Jenkins, and welcome to my podcast. I am so honored that you've taken some time to join me while you're driving or running or doing chores around the house or building something, creating something, drawing something, painting, whatever it is that you're doing. Thanks for joining me right here. I'm up in, I think this is probably the last one that I'm going to record from the kitchen at the Hilltop. The hilltop's just really, really what I refer to as as my house. I've been doing some renovation up here, and I have recently knocked out a window. Had, had an exterior wall, knocked out a window in what was uh, my little girl's room. Her, her name is it's Miriam. I, I call her Minnie, M-I-N-I. Long story behind it. Explain it a different time. But uh, Minnie's room, I, I, I built recently a... Uh, well, it, it's a, a full wing to the house. It's it's an addition. We we call it here the tiny house for the girls to have space and the boys to all be downstairs. And then there's this meeting room, um, TV room, game room, hangout area that is in the bottom of the tiny house, which isn't really tiny, um, but it's there. And once a month on the third Thursday of the month now, we have these hangouts where people that are local can just come and we can just chat and we do a little bit of teaching on health, wellness, hope, healing, restoration, uh, and cook and all these other things. And you're completely welcome to come. If you're local, just send me a private message. I'll give you the address, give you directions, and you're totally welcome to come. Again, the third Thursday of every month uh, in the evening. And uh, that information is there for you. Uh, other information is available for you. If you want to download the free ebook for all of the things that I've been teaching about redemption and the things that I will teach for the next few weeks, that's available for you too uh, on my website, jenkins.tv. All of the links are in the show notes. Let me circle back where I began. I, I said this is probably the last podcast episode from the kitchen. I, I've been officing since quarantine. Even though I work from home, I never really set up an office here. If I'm writing, I would go to a coffee shop, or if I'm in a meeting, I would just go to wherever the meeting was. So my office was really a a little closet here. You you may have seen the pictures where it just had foam, where I could record things, um, shelf space where I could set things. But if I was working in the house, I I would just set up on the kitchen table. That's no longer conducive. (laughs) So... I've taken one of the bedrooms, knocked out a huge window uh, just to where it has a view because there there are these fabulous woods really all around my house and uh, I'm able to create there. So I've got this corner upstairs in this tucked away room where I can do all the creation. Cool story. I won't get into the entire story, but I've lived downtown for years. Uh, really in in the middle of the city. I worked at a nonprofit downtown, worked at a church downtown, and really loved the vibe 
downtown saw the downtown area really change, transition, and and blossom and sprout forth. And never thought I would leave that area. And years ago, I had uh, thought, well, you know, I, I would move out if I could find a house that was two to three minutes from the interstate. And in other words, if you're from Birmingham, I didn't want to drive way down 280. Could, couldn't stand the idea of that traffic and couldn't figure out why anybody in their right mind would want that. So two to three minutes from the interstate was a criteria. I had to have yeah two, three, four acres. So that, that that's kind of a varied uh, distance or varied area right there, but, but just space. And, and I didn't want a house that was old. I didn't want one that had plaster. I wanted like sheetrock walls, something I could add on to very easily. And through a weird series of twists and turns and literally losing everything, except for, um, again, long story, except for about $100 in my checking account and a futon sofa. That's what I was down to. Um, you talk about the Lord restoring and rebuilding and, and doing it different than what you thought. Uh, but better than you imagine possible. Uh, now I'm, I'm in this place, and it's a place of quiet. Uh, although it's two to three minutes from the interstate, it's a place of refuge. It's a place of peace, hope, restoration, healing, redemption. And it, it is a place that I've been renovating and working on. It was moving ready when I got it, but love to call it home. And so uh, if you're local, yeah, we, we'd love to have you come by sometime. So information right there. Um, just PM me, direct message me, whatever, depending on how you're listening to the podcast. So let's circle back. In this episode, I've got some work to do on identity. And the idea is this, who you are is greater than what you did. Who, who you are is better than what you did. Who you are is not what you did. Now, now that verse that I started off with, let me, let me read it again. Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son. Mary will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Now, you might recognize that from a few episodes ago when I talked about that word soteria is the noun for salvation and saved is the verb for uh, sozo is the verb for saved. That, that's really what's there. He, he will sozo people. He will do something that's far all-encompassing that radically affects every area of life that has been marked, stained, touched by sin. And, and what the angel was saying here, this is the angel when the angel appears to Mary to announce that you're, you're going to have a son, is salvation is Jesus' name. It is who he is. And so Mary and Joseph were told today in their child Jesus for a specific reason. You know, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save. Now, that name Jesus, Yeshua, it literally means salvation. It's, it's not just a name like, oh, hey, this, this guy's name's you know, Ted or this guy's name's you know, Andy. That Yeshua, the translation, Jesus, it literally means, that name means salvation. In other, in other words, name the baby salvation because the baby will save. Now, back then a lot of times they named the child after the father. Uh, Zechariah, remember, named the baby John the Baptist. 
we read about that in the book of Luke, and everybody was was kind of quizzical looking because why why didn't he name the baby after someone in the family? There, there were no Johns, there were no Johns in the family. Uh, there, there were Zacharias, but he said, no, no, this is the name the Lord had given. And sometimes in Scripture, many, many times, the names are powerful. The names mean something, and the names denote what that person would do. So when we see this in the example of Jesus, salvation isn't just it isn't just what he does. It's who he is, and it's what he does because of who he is. He saves because he's a savior. Like all these things, they're they're all intertwined. And remember, as, as I've talked about in previous episodes, Jesus came to save people to do a, a way more, far more comprehensive work than people ever thought, than we've dreamed possible. So, so remember, he came to offer complete salvation, a salvation that affects the entire person. So he's completely savior. So he completely saves. He completely redeems. Now, let me take you back to church world. I, I grew up hearing a phrase a lot. It was this one. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've said it. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Now, that statement, it's well intended, but there's a big problem with it. And the problem is this. Sin does not exist apart, separate from people. So, if, if maybe you realize that sin is specific, sin's not just this nebulous thought or idea that it's out there like it's actually a specific action that occurs when people do it you you could just insert specific sins and then say hate the sin but love the sinner and maybe just insert some of those sins like think about it like this would you say i hate pedophilia but i just love people who molest innocent children or i hate terrorism but i love guys who drive semi-trucks through tourist areas intentionally mowing over people or I hate human trafficking, but I love guys who abduct young girls and then sell them as sex toys. I hate gun violence, but I love people who walk into shopping malls and open fire on innocent people. You see, that's hard. In fact, it's, it's almost impossible. It might have actually just made your stomach churn a little bit. You see, we don't dissociate sins from people. Sin only exists because people sin. You can link every sin in the world you see back to a person. It's not just a thing that's out there. It only exists because of people. Again, you can't dissociate sin from people. Now, on some level, we understand that to be true. That's why many of us who've been entrenched in sin, you know, I've got a past of, oh goodness, so many mistakes. And it's why when we do that, we tend to look back in that rearview mirror and still look back with some sense of shame, regret, some sense of, do I deserve the life that I'm living now? Do I deserve to go forward? Do I deserve to be free? Like we constantly look over our shoulder thinking somebody at any point is just gonna pull this whammy and just kind of knock us over with the truth because we still identify ourselves with that sin. Even years after it's over, years after we're on the other side, we still understand that sin is personal. Like we get it that sin only manifests when a person takes action on something and it's done. You know, the problem is, is that we all act 
and sin, and then once we sin, we continue sinning, sinning so much that really sin becomes indistinguishable from our identity at some point. In the same way that salvation was indistinguishable from Jesus' identity, the, the ruts that we create, the sins that we fall into, often intentionally, like, like they become part of our identity too. Now, back in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, religious people believed certain people were unclean based on their identity, and that unclean identity was based on the things they did. We, we kind of still do this, but just let's go back there for, for a moment. You know, 2,000 years ago, the average zealot, a, a religious fanatic, they would not go near any of the following people. They wouldn't go near lepers because of their disease that caused skin to flake and body parts to fall off of them. They would not go near tax collectors. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors, as sellouts. They would not go near bleeding people but because you could become, here's what they thought, contaminated by that person. And, and that's why everyone avoided the battered man on the side of the road except for the good Samaritan in Luke 10.25. They wouldn't go near adulterers. They, they, they felt that a person that could not be trusted even by the person with whom they had made a covenant relationship with, they couldn't be trusted by anyone. That, that sin was too great. Those are people that they would want to stone. Many of them thought they would not even go near people of other races. You see that in John 4, 9. And you know what the Samaritan woman says to Jesus if you read that story where she's like, well, well, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, there's no interaction between the two of us. One has nothing to do with the other. And it was because of the distrust, the tension, the rift that had been built between various ethnic groups over the years due to bloodshed and broken treaties. And so what would happen is the devout steered clear of all of these people because they believe that actions that people do aren't disconnected from who those people are. And so if the person did certain things that were tainted actions, the person then was tainted. Their identity it was skewed, marred beyond repair. Now, I want you to notice that some of the traits that I just listed, they're things people did. Uh, they're things that people had control over. Yeah, for instance, collecting taxes or committing adultery. But other things weren't things that people did at all. They were conditions, circumstances, situations over which people had no control. You don't choose um, whether you have leprosy or not. Uh, now, now, a lot of people would think of that as divine judgment, but people don't choose it. You don't choose what race you are. You don't choose your gender, but, but, you know, here's where it gets odd. There's always kind of a eh, snafu, right? But people in that culture believed other people received those traits because of something that they or even their parents did to warrant judgment. That That's why, uh, you know, Peter was walking with Jesus one day and he asked, hey, who, who sinned? in order to cause that man right there who was born blind, this man, this man had been blind for decades. Who sinned in order to cause that man to be born blind? Was it his sin? Because 
he really couldn't have sinned when he was in the womb, or was it his parents' sin? You know, you know they, they thought no calamity comes upon people, no skewed, second-rate, in their mind, second-rate identity was just neutral. It, it wasn't just happenstance. Like, it was because of something somebody did. This is why Job's friends, uh, and even his wife, they repeatedly insisted that Job must have been hiding some secret and sinister sin. And if you'll just repent, like all this calamity, losing your children, losing your livestock, losing your servants, losing your home, losing your health, losing everything you have is, they thought, because of sin. Sin that you're hiding. Um, now, think back. If you were with me in the previous talk, I talked about judgment and the reality that judgment has already happened. And let, let me just maybe insert this right here. Some of the issues that people want to judge others for then and now, they're, they're not even sin issues. What people do is a result of who they are on the inside, not the outside. Those, those two items, the what and the who, they're not disconnected. The what, what people do, is always a result of the who. But sometimes we, we get it wrong. Uh, sometimes we mess it up. But regardless, even when we mess it up, you know, you look at it and, and you go, we're all flawed. And even if all those issues aren't flaws, there's still something about all of us, each of us, that comes from within, inside, deep, deep inside. Is is James three? He talks about. He says, "Where do where do, do do quarrels and disagreements come from? Do they not come from within you?" Or in Mark seven, Jesus says, "All, all the evil things that men do, like they they come from out of the heart. They come the the things that you say and the lying and the cheating and the fornication and adultery, like all these things come from within and, and defile." So th there is something in in all of us, and yeah, we have our own list today, our own list of unclean people who have diseases we're afraid we'll catch. We have our particular list of people who are sellouts, like the tax collectors, our peculiar list of people who are contaminated for various reasons, whether their uh, sexual orientation, whether they have a certain disease, whether they've been divorced, whether they've been, you, you just kind of fill in the blank. And, and some of that just, it, it ironically, it varies when you go from religious tradition to religious tradition, even among denomination to religious denomination to, we have our list of certain sins that are unforgivable. Even among people, we distrust people of a different race or social standing or economic status. And you think if, if you've ever, maybe like, let's just flesh it out. Let's just, let's just be real. If you've ever grabbed your children and held them closer because a man or woman near you used to be in prison, or if you ever felt a pit in your stomach when you received one of those postcards from the sheriff's office that alert you that a sex offender has moved within a few blocks of your home, uh, if you've ever seen a homeless uh, person holding a will work for food sign, they're on the side of the road, and you think, ah, if I give it to them, they don't want to work. They, they just go spend it on alcohol. 
or, or if you've ever argued that a prostitute or a stripper is not a victim because she, or, or it could even be a he, chose the life that they're in. It, it, if you've done any of the above, if you've ever done that, that you understand how sin can become part of someone's identity. I mean, you, you've, and I've, I've done this on all of these, these are examples that I've, I've done. You've identified that person based on something that, get this, it might not even be a sin. Some of those things are, some are not. But, but either way, in fairness to your assessment and, and, and to mine, I'm speaking to the man in the mirror right here, the things that they did, the things that you did, the things that I did, the, the things that all of us, I mean, this, this, is, this is just the human condition, imperfection. And, you know, I, I mean, honestly, we all carry this guilt, shame, because we know we've all messed up. They, those things, they emerge from who we are. And in that same way that the salvific acts of Jesus, that's a thats a big word right there, isn't it? Salvific? I don't even know if that's a word. But in the same way that those salvation acts of Jesus arise from his identity, so also in the same way does sin really emerge from our core. What we do, what you do, what I do, all a result of who we are. Now, here's, here's some of the tension. At some point, you've got to allow people, I've got to allow people, we've got to allow people to move on. There's got to be a moment when we look at some sort of evidence and say, oh, okay, things have changed. This person is now a new person. This person deserves a new shot. Clean slate. Step forward. Remember a couple years ago, it's been about two and a half years ago, and man, I, I had royally messed up some things in life and I went rock bottom into a pit not not a story I'm hiding from you just a story I'll share at a different time I, I remember at that instant just being in utter despair and, and I remember several different people one was a friend of mine named Les uh, another one was my dad looking at me at two separate instances in about a two-day period and saying, hey, what you did is past. You've done all the repentance. At some point, you, you quit looking in the rearview mirror like it doesn't help. At some point, you get to move forward. This sin, and, and they rightly called it what it is. This has been judged. It's been repented of. Jesus has taken care of it. You've repented of it. You've moved forward. Whether or not other people acknowledge that and allow you to move on says more about them than it says about you. And so you, you go back to the list I just gave you a moment ago, you, you think about it, is, is the fact that someone that you know, um, someone that I know, and when I was teaching this information the first time at the Dream Center, I kind of alluded to that a few episodes ago, and, and I, you know, I'd just say it, I had, goodness, 25, 30% of the people that were there in that, those, those weekly meetings had been in prison. And I, and I would just say, hey, is the fact that you used to be in prison actually a current sin? No, you, you might have done something to merit getting there, but you, you did the crime, you did the time on a temporal level, it's done. You did the sin on an eternal level, you, you 
Look back at Jesus. It's paid for. You may have some temporal consequences in the real world to, to uh, work off the, the behavior in some sense, like society may demand or command something, but, but it's past. You get to move forward. That's what you did. It's no longer who you are. And what you did in the past might have emerged from who you were then, but now you're new. You think about it, really, it is a past offense of, of any kind. Any past offense, any addiction, any theft, any broken relationship, broken covenant, even on your behalf. Is that unforgivable now? Even if we admit and say, yes, it emerged from who I was, I was flawed, I was hurt, I was in despair. I mean, there's always so many extenuating circumstances, right, that put pressure on the soul. But in the end, it comes from the inside out. Nonetheless, is any of that unforgivable? Is is being a homeless or being of a different race even actually a sin? Absolutely not. All, all created in the image of God. All. And and, and are we certain, maybe another question, that someone's stuck in a lifestyle of what we would deem to be sin, uh, prostitution, for example, are they always the ones sinning or might they actually be a victim? Like, might, might they be someone else's slave? Might there be more layers going on? And you see, even if these were all personal choices at some point in the past, it Bigger question, is there anything that the blood of Jesus doesn't cover now? Is there a way to transform someone's core identity during their lifetime such that in time and space here now, because of what happened 2,000 years ago, things are transformed and the person is made new? And the answer is is Yes. I remember working in the nonprofit that housed people coming off drugs, off the streets, off prison, human trafficking, addictions. One thing that I learned is that the truth is that most prisoners aren't violent. They will fiercely guard your children. They will overprotect them on your behalf. That was my experience. I worked with that group for almost a decade. Most homeless people, they want help. Now, despite the fact that, yeah, there are some that milk the system, most of them don't want to. There are many strippers and prostitutes who are stuck, trapped. They were tricked into a way of life. And I'm not excusing anyone's actions. I'm simply observing that there's there's usually more going on than what we can see with our simple drive-by arguments and judgments. Most people, most people are actually doing the best they can. And whereas you and I like to judge sin as black and white and right and wrong, most of life happens in varying shades of gray. In, in other words, you can't really understand anyone apart from knowing, and, and I would even say getting in the dirt and walking with them in their story. And, and many of those people, in fact, I, I would even say most, most of them, at the core, we're all alike. Different details, for sure. But struggling admits sin imperfection, identity, and stuff emerging from who we are. Now, 
Here, here's one of the issues. Maybe just kind of another layer to this. Maybe just let me pose it as a question. You know, like, have you ever been to an AA meeting? Uh, if you have, you, you know, most of the time they would get up there and say something like this: "Hi, I'm Andy. I'm an alcoholic." And everybody in unison: "Hi, Andy." Or if you want to use language like I referred to in a previous episode, uh, "Hi, I'm Andy." I've been set free, but I'm still identifying myself as a slave. You see? Like that's the language so often we use is even after we're set free, our our soul, uh, our mind, we still identify us based on where we were. Yeah, the, the reality is thousands of years ago, I, th I think in the Exodus story, if you met Joshua and Caleb on the other side of the Red Sea, the other, well, this side. So um, they, they passed through from Egypt, from slavery to freedom. They, they wouldn't have identified themselves based on the past. You, you, you wouldn't have met them and seen them referring to themselves as slaves. You, you would have met them based on the present, e even while they were wandering through the wilderness. Like even in that moment, over and over, you see this idea that the children of Israel keep saying, hey, back when we were slaves, like they, they didn't just erase their history. They didn't just pretend it never existed. But over and over, there's this refrain that that was then. Now, things are different. And by the way, if you don't know who Joshua and Caleb are, they're the two of the men who left Egypt in the Exodus. They were the only two spies who believed that Israel could conquer the promised land. And then when everybody refused to go in because of giants in the land, they're the ones that 40 years later, after everyone else died in the wilderness, they got a chance to take the land. Okay, so now with that, I'm not picking on AA, I'm not picking on NA, I'm not picking on any recovery group that would identify you or that you would use to identify yourself based on past mistakes, past sins, past addictions, past issues. The truth is I'm actually for anything that helps set people free. In fact, I would say all of it is Jesus's freedom. It's just different it's just different outlets that that he uses. And and the reality is just so you know, I've actually attended recovery groups before as a participant. The, the bigger issue to me is that we we do this with all kinds of sins. This label, labeling ourselves on our past rather than our potential. And and we do this I think because of this idea that we understand that those sins were once part of our identity. Those sins emerged from who we, well, let me use past tense, who we were. Not who we are, but who we were because you and I understand that sin is personal. Here's the good news though. Cleanness. Cleanness is stronger than uncleanness. Grace is stronger than grit and grime. You, you could understand it like this. Light always overpowers darkness. When you flip on a light switch, it doesn't struggle. Whenever and wherever light appears, darkness simply disappears. And when it does, that, that darkness actually where it's present, is it doesn't just flee. That darkness that's there is actually transformed into something completely different. You know, one, one example right now if it's if it's light just turn off turn off that light let the dark settle and then flip that switch back on or if it's dark and you're looking outside the window 
So I'm looking outside right now where I have some floodlights around the house. If yours are off, flip them on and there's no struggle. The cleanness, the light, the purity, it's stronger. Pure, purity doesn't struggle to cleanse that which is impure. Renewal simply happens by virtue of the presence of something pure because purity is stronger. Grace is greater. Now, again, remember, people in Jesus' day believed that contact with an unclean, that, that's their word, unclean person, it actually defiled you if you were clean. They, they understood that sin is connected to people. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Sin doesn't just exist by itself. It didn't back then, nor does it now. It only exists because people do it. So it's so intertwined with their identity that, again, they believe they should avoid people who participated in such sins. And honestly, that's why many times we avoid ourselves. Back then, let's just illustrate it. There, there's an example when, here's the quotation. It's in Luke 7, a woman of the street. Now, you know what that means. She crashed a dinner party and anointed Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees that were there, the religious zealots, leaders who were there, they concluded that Jesus must not be a prophet. They actually said no, no man of God would allow an unclean person that close because that sinner... So she's unclean. Her identity is a sinner, is what they've said, would taint him. That they believed sin was stronger than grace. So she's there. She's anointing his feet with costly oils. And of course, everyone at the dinner party, which again, she crashed, interrupted. She's uninvited. Everyone there knew exactly where she earned the money for that gift. Dinner host, Luke 7.39, mutters to himself, if this man were a prophet, he, he, would, he would know who. He would know what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. He just articulated what all of them thought. But, but there's this. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus reached out to people like that? To, quote, these people, the unclean people? It's almost as if he intentionally went out of his regular routine to touch these people and pull them close. F furthermore, they were the ones who were actually the most comfortable around him. They gravitated toward him knowing that they would be accepted. Uh, prostitutes crashed dinner parties to get to Jesus. Tax collectors climbed trees like Zacchaeus and they moved through crowded streets. It's Luke 19. Uh, Pharisees mocked him though. Or, or if they went to see him, they snuck at night like we see in John 3. When people who had been shunned for being unclean came to him, Jesus often... He, he even reached out and physically touched them, even breaking religious rules in doing so. And the idea that I see there is that the more shunned you'd been in the world, the more secure you are likely to feel with Jesus. Now, think about it. Like, Jesus often healed with just one word. Like, he could just say it. He often did these 
uh, I would call them, this is what a college professor of mine uh, at Sanford University said. He actually called them long distance miracles where Jesus would just say, hey, go and your servants well, or go and your daughters well. And like the person that's being healed is not even there. Jesus just gives the command from afar. And literally a person from one town to the next is made well. You, you see that multiple times, like Matthew 8, 13, Matthew 15, 28. But Jesus, knowing that he can do that, he can heal with a word. He can heal uh, across the countryside. He always physically touched lepers. You think, well, well why? I mean, the Old Testament law said that if you touched a leper, that now you are considered to be unclean. Why? Well, it's because those people, the quote, unclean, had been ostracized. And everybody's thinking and judging them harshly because if anything's wrong with you, it's got to emerge from who you are. There's got to be something, not just what you did, but, but who you are. Your identity is flawed, what they thought. Those people, they'd been judged so harshly that no one would even come close to them. They had been denied human interaction. They'd been judged. And people, me, you, the person that you have uh, a frustration, uh, a rift with, uh, people that I have a rift with, uh, prostitutes 2,000 years ago, lepers who fell at Jesus' feet, people weren't designed to carry the weight of judgment. No one is. We can't carry it. Uh, that's why we crumble under the weight of shame. And that's why Jesus took it. We, we were designed for hope. We were designed for redemption. We were designed for freedom. And so you see like in Mark 140, there's this story where this leper comes in and says, hey, hey, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, but be clean. And then it says, as if Mark's intentionally drawing us to it, Jesus deliberately, intentionally reaches out to touch the leper. It's, it's almost like he's saying here, hey, your uncleanness, it won't make me unclean. But my cleanness, it will cleanse you. In that story, Mark 144, Jesus then instructs the healed, but now former leper, don't go tell anyone. <laughs> go show yourself to the high priest and offer the sacrifice for cleansing. Now, this is interesting because the high priest is the one, according to Leviticus 14, he's the only one that could verify that the leper had been healed, that the leper had a new identity. And then, only then, that leper would be welcomed into the community. Everyone would then, after that pronouncement, accept him as clean. So when Jesus is doing this, Jesus healed the man physically, and by doing so, he's healing that man's relationship to the faith community. He's restoring relationships. And just really as a side note, a footnote, what I see there is redemption, true biblical freedom. It always does this. It frees us to walk in relationship with God, and it frees us to enjoy other people. It doesn't fracture relationships. It heals, it mends, it brings them together. Now, in this story, there was a problem, though. 
that leper is overcome with joy. And he begins to go out and freely spread the news of his healing. He, in other words, he didn't just go to the high priest and say, hey, examine me, I'm healed, here's the sacrifice that I offer on behalf of this as an act of worship to my heavenly Father. No, he goes out and just exclaims among everybody, hey, Jesus touched. Jesus physically touched me. Now, I know the reality is it would be hard for you and I to not share that. But, big problem, according to Leviticus 13 and 14, Jesus himself was now ceremonially unclean too. According to the Old Testament law, he had to leave town. Presumably, he had to go live among the lepers as well as anyone else who had been excluded from the local faith community, which is exactly what he did uh, per the written Old Testament law, he would need to go after that and show himself to the high priest and verify that he was clean. Okay, so I'm sure you see the irony there. And I understand if you need to go look this up in the scripture and get some historical documentation. Mark writes this, that after he touched the leper, Mark 145, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. Why? Because he touched the leper. What does that mean? He's ceremonially unclean. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. Yeah, with all the vagabond, all the riffraff like you, like me, like all of us that have done these hurtful, horrible things that just flowed out of who we are. But there's this man that meets us out in the desolate places and says, no, 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 come on, come in close. Your mess up is not gonna mess me up. Your uncleanness isn't gonna uncleanse me. My purity will purify you. My wholeness will make you whole. My healing will heal you. My cleanness will cleanse you. I'm gonna give you a new identity. Now, here's what's interesting, too. Mark says that the crowd, uh, apparently realizing that they were all unclean, too. Like, all these people that are there that see Jesus touch this leper, like, they're so overcome. They're like, oh, I mean, I'm not a leper, but Jesus, like, I've got issues, too. It says that they don't care, and they see massive grace in action. And so they all, according to Mark 145, flock out to the remote areas where Jesus is. I, I know it's a story that like we rarely ever talk about in church because what do you do with the fact that now Jesus can't ceremonially go to the temple, which is where he teaches all the time, and yet he has to leave. And the crowd that's not even ritualistically, ceremonially unclean is so overcome that they leave too. You see? In Jesus, they saw someone who saw them for what they could be, not for who they were or had been. They saw someone who saw them as free even while they were still slaves. His presence was to them and is to me, to you, an invitation to something more. Again, it, it's almost as if he says, hey, hey, look, look at me, look at me, like lift, lift your head off with the shame, look at me, 
in the eye and let this sink deep into your soul. I know what you did. I died for it 2,000 years ago, all of it, all the past, the present, even the missteps that you'll make in the future, and who you are now is greater than what you did. What you did might have emerged from who you were, but that's gone. Look. My uncleanness, there is none. Your uncleanness, give it to me. It won't make me unclean, but my cleanness will make you whole. And then it's almost as if he continues and says, even if others don't see it that way, I'm willing to take your label and your stigma upon myself, even like I took the label and the stigma of the leper, of the woman of the street, of others who had messed up. I can take the label because who you are, who you really are, it's greater than any other thing that might define you in this moment that might define you at any point in the future, that might define you ever. Or, to say it another way, and I close with this, I see you. I see who I really created you to be. And now is your time to shine. Grace.